Welcome to Status Check with Spivey, where we talk about life, law school, law school admissions, a little bit of everything. Today is Friday, August 6th. And for reference, we're in the last few days of the summer 2021 Olympics. That's particularly relevant to today's guest because it is my great honor to have with me Lauren Williams, who amongst many other things, is the first American woman to ever have medaled in both the Summer and Winter Olympics. So this is going to be a a little bit of a two-part podcast. We're going to speak about student debt and student loans and how to minimize debt. That's Lauren's current professional career and expertise. But we're going to start off on her athletic arena accomplishments, but not just accomplishments. I often think that athletes have an early opportunity to see failure in a very public sense, which we're all going to face at some point in our lives, and in some sense are better equipped with later life skills because of the failures they have to overcome earlier in their lives. So we'll explore that, then we'll shift gears and we'll explore student debt, student loans. Without further delay now, let me turn it over to Lauren. Good morning. Lauren, how are you? I am doing wonderful, Mike. I am so excited to talk all things sports, student loans, Olympics, and life in general. I couldn't be more excited. We've had, of all the celebrity guests on our podcast, you're the one that's most dear to my heart as far as similarities. So can we start with maybe sports a little bit? Yeah, let's do it. Your background, you've won Olympic medals in both the Summer and Winter Olympics. I believe you were the first American female and only one of five people in the world who ever have accomplished that? Well, as of this recording, we now have six. Eddie Alvarez in the current Olympic Games is a speed skater and also a baseball player. But yes, I am the only American woman to have done it. The American man did it in like 1932 and now there's Eddie. So you were a high school athlete, of course. What were the events that you participated in? In high school, I did mostly the sprint. So 100 meters, occasionally the 200. I loved the long jump, even though I'm short at a small five foot three and was not amazing at it. I was pretty good at the high school level, but not good enough to continue on in the college level. Uh, And then, of course, the four by one relay. Yeah. And then did you go to University of Miami specifically? Was their track program? Because you're from Pittsburgh, correct? Yes. So when it came time to pick the schools, you know, I was was being recruited pretty heavily. I was only looking at the schools where it was warm. All I could think about was I don't want to have to wait until April to go outside. And if I'm going to be obligated to do this track and field thing in order to get my education, because that's kind of more how I was thinking of it initially, then I better be able to fulfill my obligations to the university. And so best done at a warm place like Miami. Okay. So my whole adult career has been admission. So I'm always interested in why people chose the schools they went to. I'm guessing you looked at LSU, maybe University of Florida, et cetera. What's interesting is that I was not highly recruited to some of the big schools. So at the time, those were big track and field schools, but I was not highly recruited in that regard. And it was funny because I was about number five in the country and the top four girls all went to the same school. So you thought there's like, there's only Lauren left, but I think some of those schools probably regret their decision at this point uh, and maybe have changed some of their recruiting practices. <laughs> I think one of my favorite parts of admissions is when schools regret not having admitted someone because they do so well where they were at. Speaking of Florida, I was relatively recently recently on their track, University of Florida. I'm like 85% sure Tim Tebow was really early in the morning was the only other person on there. He looked just like Tebow. It would make sense that he'd be on the track. I didn't want to, you know, celebrities like famous athletes like you and he, (laughs) I try not to pester them too much. 
if he was there was, bright and early, it's probably he was trying to hide out, get it in before he got too busy. <laughs> well, you get up early too, don't you? I am an early riser. Today was a 3 a.m. day. Okay, so I thought this might be the one area where you're not ahead of me. We do all the same things. You're just more advanced. I get up at about 3.30 a.m. every morning. When do you, how about you? No, 5.30 is more my regular. Yes. So, yeah, you definitely have me beat. Today was an anomaly. <laughs> and you're in Dallas? Yes. I'm in Dallas about twice a year, COVID notwithstanding. The next time in Dallas, I'm not kidding because I am immaturely hyper-competitive. A former <laughs> sprinter like you, we did the same thing, the 200. We were going to find a track. We'll fly on it down, who's recording this. And we're going to race each other and put it on video. Deal? Ah. <laughs> Anna, do you hear this? You've you got some work to do to catch, to capture both of us on the camera at the same time. I know. You'll be so far ahead of me. <laughs> so I, I watched last night, I watched Marion Jones do the 221.85. Mm. And I think mine was right around a 23 something. And I don't, you'll, you'll get this. I don't think the average person who hasn't done competitive sprinting understands a two second difference in the 200. Like you don't see that person on the other end of the camera. It is so true. Two seconds makes a world of a difference in sport. Time is very, very important. And, you know, we get down often to the 0.01 of a second to get to which person definitively won a race. So yeah, two seconds is a long period of time. Okay. So the pressure's on Anna to keep me in the camera with you well ahead of me. We'll see how that goes. But I'm retired now, so you know there's there's always a chance that you're gonna always, be right next to me. I have a I have a running foot injury right now, so if there's any doctors listening, if you want to contact us, hit me up with steroids or freeze my foot, then I'll fly to Dallas and we'll do it. But I always remember my athletic failures more than I remember my athletic successes. I'm curious if that's the case with most of us. It is, in fact, the case with me. You know, now that I'm retired, I think I've done a better job of being able to reflect on overall experiences. And some things that I maybe looked at as failures, I now can see kind of the the light that was at the end of the tunnel. And then I can also remember some more positive experiences instead of just the negative ones. But definitely in the moment, if you ask me, you know, how's it going? Or, you know, what was that before? I'm always going to tell you the negative versus the positive. You know, it's kind of about training your mind to, you know, start focusing on the things that you do well versus the things that you didn't do so well. We're certainly, I think, all our strongest critics, for sure. <laughs> What's one of the positive memories? What's the positive memory that stands out? My favorite memory is a bobsled memory. So we wrecked our sled about two days before the Olympic Games began in a trial run. So our brakes didn't work properly, and we actually hit a wall after we had already finished the whole course. It totaled our sled. A bobsled costs about $80,000. So it's not bunches of bobsleds laying around and you just grab another one. Also, you know, the driver is getting very acclimated to the very, you know, little small turns and techniques that they need to use within a particular sled. So we had to go and get parts from a, a prototype sled to rebuild our sled in less than 24 hours so we could attend the last practice related to bobsled. We showed up at the practice and we were just not sure if it was going to work. It, the bobsled was new technology. BMW had just started working with us. They fixed it in 24 hours. Like nobody fixed a total car in 24 right, hours. Right. So we were pretty nervous that we had lost our opportunity to, you know, contend for the gold medal at the games. And we went kind of pensively down the track for our, that last practice. And we actually ended up having the fastest time of the day for practice. And so we're like, okay, our sled works. And we're really just pumped as we get out. So in bobsled, it's about a 400 pound sled. And your responsibility is to put that sled back on the truck. It goes back to the top of the mountain and then you pull the, the sled off of the truck. So there's a lot of moving parts as it pertains, you know, it's not like a staff and a crew that does everything for you. But we get back to the top of the mountain and all of the countries and everybody who's there at practice that day are lined up and they're cheering for us. 
And it was such a cool moment to me because what it illustrated was everybody wanted to be able to see us compete. So often we get in these competitive modes or you hear competitive things where people, you know, say bad things about their competitor or they want to see the other person fail. In that moment, it was exciting for everyone because they knew what we had gone through the day before and they knew we almost lost our chance to compete at the Olympics. So to see people from all countries really excited that we were able to succeed was a moment that I'll never forget. I love it. It's a great story. Has U.S. bobsled learned from that? And is there now like a $80,000 backup bobsled? If you're listening and you want to donate to U.S. bobsled <laughs> so that we can get an $80,000 backup, those smaller sports are very poorly funded. And so we do a lot of scraping and, and kind of getting by, if you will, to be able to have what they need as it pertains to resources. Those that earn more medals or the bigger name sports and the ones you see more at the forefront on television are, are those that are going to be better funded and have more resources. So there is no $80,000 said. <laughs> we'll stick with the smaller sport for one more second. What is more annoying to you when you say I'm a former bobsledder and people say, oh, have you seen that movie on the Jamaican bobsled team? Or when people say, oh, you must know who Herschel Walker is. Which one of those two comes up more and which is more annoying? Uh, I think they're equally as annoying. <laughs> Herschel Walker is way before my time. So okay. that's the one thing. And everybody, you know, like I do know now because I have been asked that question so often. But yeah, it was like, uh, I don't know anything about him initially. And then Cool Runnings. Uh, it was actually my only reference to bobsled before I started as well. So I kind of get it. But it also, it still gets old to hear it over and over. Like, do you put an egg in your, your bobsled? And <laughs> No, <laughs> and you don't. Right. So kudos to you. I was always the guy going the slowest on the Alpine sled. How fast do you go when you when you bobsled down? Uh, about 90 miles an hour is on the high end. Somewhere between the 70s and 80s is more average, though. I can't even imagine. You freaked out the first time you did it? Oh, totally freaked out. It's like being kicked off a cliff in a washing machine. Okay. Yeah, that, can, that sounds about right. I live in Colorado, so I can actually do that. Oh, online. you totally should. <laughs> no, we're, I'm not going to bobsled. I'm certainly not going to let anyone kick me off a cliff. But speaking of kicked off cliffs, like every other human being who's ever lived on this planet, and I think particularly athletes sometimes in other fields too, they get to experience failure at an earlier age on a bigger stage. Tell me what one of those is stand out. Failure on a big stage. I would say... 2007, this is one of the ones where, like you said, initially I was really, really disappointed. And now that I look back on it, I'm a lot less disappointed. I got the silver medal in the world championships in the 100 meters. And it was by, like you said, that 0 0.01. So yeah. initially they thought somebody else won the race and they threw up a different name. You know, they threw up four or five different names. And then they finally just said, like, well, we'll leave the screen blank for a while. And it came down to me and another young lady that they were trying to decide for a photo finish. And they you know, ultimately decided that she was the winner. Do you talk about a failure on a big stage? I'd won in 2005, the world championship. So I would have been a back-to-back -back world champion. And then also the opportunity was leading into the Olympic Games where I felt like I was going to be the favorite after 2004. So that was another level of failure. But I had fought back from a bunch of injuries that particular year. And it was just a rough year of, having the injury, not really understanding how the injury happened, not understanding how to treat it because it wasn't just a normal, like I tore my hamstring. So there's some things that are just kind of like par for the course and everybody knows what to do. My injury was like related to nerve damage. And it was like something that you had to manage on a really like weird, you had to massage your toe to make your, your knee feel better. It was just like all this crazy stuff that like didn't really make a lot of sense. And so I would say I felt so, so bad to have come so far and then not won the world championship. So I look back on it now. And like I said, it's not a failure so much 
because I realized like, wow, look how much you conquered to even get to the world championships that year. So that's a great perspective. I think one thing athletics taught me, and you actually probably never hit this, but what it showed me, and this for our listeners, this is very much the case when you go through the admissions process at the law school level. So many of our listeners have heard yes because of their amazing talent their whole life in a no from a Harvard Law School or whatever law school is the first time they heard no. My formative athletic memories, I'm not so sure if they're failures, but they tend to be when I found out like, okay, the pyramid is now near the top and there's a steepness above me that I'll never reach. I can remember, I think it was like the pin relays type event (laughs) where, you know, I was doing my 200 and I was the fastest in my state. I think one of the fastest in New England, but all of a sudden these kids from Florida and Texas, you know, there was one guy that weighed 215 pounds and he went on to be an NFL fullback and he could beat me at the 200. (laughs) Yeah. You go from being a a big fish in a little pond to a little fish in a big pond and it doesn't feel very good. Very quickly. Did that happen to you too ever? I mean, you've won gold medals. So. I would say more when I switched over to finance as an industry. Oh, um, that's you know. interesting. We'll talk mm-hmm. about that soon. Yeah. I mean, my only other memory is playing baseball in, uh, in Cape Cod on this all-star team of all the best kids in Connecticut where I was from. And I remember facing this pitcher from Massachusetts who ended up having a very successful major league baseball career. And I remember going up to the plate, Lauren, and I just wanted my little bat to touch that little ball. Like I didn't care whether, you know, I grounded out to the pitcher embarrassingly. I didn't want to have to bow my head after three strikes and walk back to the dugout. Right. That's when I hung it up. You hung it up after an incredibly successful career. During that career, you got your MBA, correct? I did. While competing as a professional athlete, I earned yeah. an MBA. Did you do it full-time or part-time? I did it. Well, or I guess I was, it was full-time. It was, it was a two-year program. Okay. It was online though. And that was the beginning of online, you know, Online is a much better now than it was back in 2008. <laughs> yeah, well, and better this year than two years ago because of COVID. I mean, the technology just boomed. Exactly. So you wrote a book? I have. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? The book is my gift back to sport. So track and field, there were so many things that I wish I would have known. And, you know, it's not a big thing like NFL or NBA or you know, where there's a whole clear process that the, the athletes are going through as they go from a college athlete to a professional athlete or even, you know, sometimes high school to professional at this point. And so we don't have any way to really guide ourselves or to navigate those waters. And I felt like athletes need to know and understand like what they should be thinking about. So they can start making those decisions on their own because you literally go from overnight where someone's bossing you around and, you know, you're a scholarship athlete, the coach is in charge of you to now you employ the coach and you employ an agent and you employ all these other people and you're maybe still 20 or 22. Now, looking back at my my 22 year old self, I realized I was not a grown up, even though they they say at 21, you become a grown up. So I shared in my book all the things I wish I would have known as a professional athlete, so from branding to picking a coach, to picking an agent, to managing my finances, you know, just all the things. It makes sense. Your transition to sort of financial planning, many names come to mind, but the first one that comes to mind was Mike Tyson. You think about how much money he won per fight. And I don't know off the top of my head, but tens of millions of dollars per fight, per fight. And then he became bankrupt. And the typical person says, well, how does that happen? But what's happening to a lot of famous athletes and other celebrities is every third person is saying, can you invest in this? Can you invest in that? I think there's this like common misunderstanding that they're spending all their money. All these famous people are spending all their money on their entourages. No, that's just a drop in the bucket. They're losing money on stupid investments is how they go from hundred million dollars to bankrupt. Is that 
pretty accurate. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it's the same for the quote unquote normal person versus the professional athlete. People just don't see it that way. If you lack financial literacy, you're going to make financial mistakes. If you lack a good team to be able to help you make good financial decisions, you're going to make financial mistakes. So whether you make $20,000 a year, $200,000 a year, you know, 200,000 or 20 million, you can still end up with the $0 and zero cents. And so it's easy to say, if I had that much money, I would never, you know, blow it or waste it like that. But it's really about if I have enough literacy, I'm going to be able to do what's right. And if you, you end up with a lot and you don't have literacy, you're going to make the same mistakes that that, you know, big time athlete you're watching on TV has made as well. So I probably, I probably make lots of financial mistakes. So let's, <laughs> so let's shift gears to that arena. <laughs> this is where, I mean, if you're going to beat me by four seconds in the 200, you'd beat me by four minutes in financial literacy. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit like your definition of why we have a student debt crisis or problem in this nation? Yeah, the cost of education is being inflated dramatically and unnecessarily in a way that is not going to allow borrowers to continue to get education if they don't take on student loan debt. And I think it's a, a gross disservice that's being done to, you know, continue to inflate the cost and continue to build buildings on campuses and things like that to just kind of keep up what is like the status quo versus to think about what it actually costs to get an education, what it actually costs to compensate, you know, the great professors that work at these institutions and the admissions officers. What do we actually need to run the business and run a profitable business versus why do we need to keep raising the cost of education and draining? You know, so we know we can get dollars from the federal government. So why not? Let's just make the cost go up, pass it off to the student. They're going to take it on because they know they got to get a different additional education in order to get a degree. And, and it's just this big rigmarole of not a good system. You know, I saw a faculty member at Columbia Law School tweet when the rankings came out, something along the lines of, it's great that we're a top six law school, but it's ridiculous that we charge 72,000 whatever a year tuition. And my first thought was, do you know where that bucket, that big bucket goes towards? Faculty salaries. Mm. There's a faculty salary arms, arms race. The market is a market of this prestige. It's not value add. They're not being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for the teaching value add because it's very hard to measure that. It's right. how much have you published? What's your academic prestige? Oh, okay. We're going to give you three tenureships. Like someone, when I was at Vanderbilt Law School, we hired, we gave them tenureships in political science, economics, and law school. They're going to make a million a year. And who's going to bear that burden? The students. Right. So mm -hmm. the students that pay full tuition or have tuition even. I'm very nuanced with my terminology. I don't even call it merit aid. I call it remission. Because even if you get 50% remission, you're paying, you're still paying 50% of that inflated tuition. It's like, very true. And, and people don't think of it like that. Unless it's a full scholarship, to me, you're probably still paying a good amount. And for most people, not everyone, but for most people, you're taking out loans. So let's talk about that. Publicly funded loans, government loans versus private loans. What would the decision-making vectors be in deciding which route to go? So I'll, I'll briefly cover undergraduate. I know we're mostly going to stick to graduate, but undergraduate-wise, you're allowed to take roughly about $30,000 of federal loans. Sometimes people end up in a situation where they're not eligible for aid 
above and beyond. They need more than that $30,000 for the school they were admitted to. You know, their parents, FAFSA is pointing them in the direction of not getting any additional aid. And so then they decide to take on private loans. So if you're listening and you are a parent of a student that is getting ready to get an undergraduate degree and they are not eligible for federal loans, I would say to try to do as much as you can to make sure that their education is going to be affordable and that they don't take on private loans in an undergraduate situation. Because what ends up happening, they finish their undergraduate degree, they go get entry level work, and now they have, let's say, 200,000 of private student loan debt. Well, there's no way to negotiate with private student loan debt. You get a really high interest rate and there's just not income that's going to even support because they don't have any graduate education. They don't have any experience in anything. They probably can't even refinance into a lower interest rate debt. So you put your child in a really tough financial situation to dig themselves out of that hole from the very beginning. That's What's the current interest rate on a private loan for undergraduate around now. Yeah, I would say it's somewhere between like seven and 12%. I've seen 12%. Like it's like a credit card almost like this is awful. Double digit interest rates for student loan debt. It's, it's terrible. From the graduate standpoint, private versus federal, you know, you definitely want to try to stick federal so that you have the flexibility to decide whether or not you should go private at a later date. So federal loans, there's no cap on how much you can borrow. So that's one thing that is both good and bad. Right, <laughs> we right. know that people use and abuse that with people that don't have financial literacy, people that don't understand how the system works. And a lot of students are saying, well, I want to go to school full time. So I'm going to, I need to take out enough to cover my rent and my car and my on and on and on cost of living. But you end up with a hefty student loan debt. You have to repay all the time that you just spent, you know, getting not just that education, but living while getting that education. Now, the good thing about federal loans is that there are various forgiveness programs. So you can go either 20 or 25 years and, you know, pay your loans during that time period based on what your income is. And then after that, whatever is left over will be forgiven. However, you will have to pay taxes on the amount that is forgiven. So one of the great problems that we're having right now is that people are taking on this student loan debt, have six-figure student loan debt, are on these income-driven repayment programs, but... They're in a situation where they don't realize they're going to have to save up for a tax liability down the road, and they're going to be shocked and amazed when when the IRS particularly says, give me more money after your loans are forgiven. So we got to start educating people about that. And one of the the consultants at my firm, we sent an email out letting everyone know we'd be doing a podcast with you. And if anyone had any questions, there's 220-something years of admissions experience. So, of course, they did have questions. One of my consultants was curious she said she recalled reading several articles and exposés of sorts in the last couple of years alone, a first look at graduates who passed the 10-year mark on how few people had actually had their loans forgiven, highlighting huge issues with the otherwise beautiful marketing tool. Is there some truth to that, that people don't have their loans forgiven, even though it's marketed that they will? Yes, I would love to cover this question. So she is referring to what we call the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. Yes, yes, her words, yep. Yes, and the program I just described to you, the 20 or 25 years, is just income-driven. If you work in public service, so a government agency, a nonprofit, AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, faculty at most schools, any position actually, actually at most schools, it's going to cover you for public service loan forgiveness. So what happens is you work there for a period of 10 years, you're on an income-driven repayment plan, Here's the big one that everyone's missing, and this is where those articles have some truth, but what a lot of people don't understand is like they didn't know that there was a criteria and that there was a way for them to change their loans. So you have to have direct federal loans. Now, what do you have if you don't have direct? You have what they call FFEL loans, so federal family education loans, and those are older loans that existed before 2010. 
So you, it was kind of luck of the draw. You didn't do anything wrong by getting the FFEL loans, but you would have had to know when the program became available in 2007 that, oh, I've got the wrong kind of loans. I need to consolidate them, turn them into direct loans so that I am eligible for the program. So yes, the numbers have been low up to this point. 2017 was the first time anyone was going to get forgiveness on that 10 years, but it's because a lot of people didn't understand what the criteria were and they didn't meet the criteria. As of 2010, though, they only issued direct loans. So if we go 10 years, fast forward from 2010. Right, exactly. We have a big self-correction coming. We haven't seen the new numbers published. Of course, COVID threw everything off. But 2020 numbers should be a big spike from what you've seen 2017, 18, and 19. And the numbers should continue to rise because now people know the criteria. And that big piece that was helping them miss the criteria is now, like you said, self-corrected. Okay. I'll ask you a a more philosophical question because you clearly are an expert. Do you have any thoughts on how realistic student loan forgiveness plans, keeping with the topic, similar to what Senator Sanders and Senator Warren have championed? Is it possible that these could come to fruition? Or are these more people sort of on the most optimistic side saying we need this, but it's not going to happen? I think we have to take a deeper look. And so we, we talked about financial literacy earlier. You know, there's people that are just like hardcore, like blanket forgiveness. Everybody gets it. And then there's people hardcore on the other side of saying, you took those loans, you pay them back. Those are your responsibility, not ours. And then there's everything in between. I think that there is some merit to there being some sort of forgiveness. And we really have to look at like, you know, what would be helpful to us as an economy in America and then helpful to the people who can benefit most from it. So the $10,000 forgiveness, as an example, would wipe out a lot of debt. And if they were based on income, it would wipe out a lot of debt for people who went to things like a trade school, a technical school, hairdressing school, cosmetology school, and are in a low income bracket and are not going to have an opportunity to earn or maybe not able to get into good housing because they have poor credit because they defaulted on their loan. So it could clean up a lot for some of our lower income individuals in America and give them an opportunity to start to earn and you know really reach their full potential. Now, blanket forgiveness, like you said, would wreck the economy. So we we need to think about that. People did borrow, like you said, faculty does need to be paid. Schools do need to run. There is a cost associated with it. And I don't think anyone thinks that schools should be 100% free. Where does the compensation come from for people, for individuals who are educating other people? So blanket forgiveness would not be good for the economy. But then on the other end of it, people are being buried by student loans. And what's happening right now is not okay. And so the sort of forgiveness that exists right now is is helpful. uh, But I think something that is more helpful could come into play. And I think that's where we need to be thinking and focusing. There's always two sides to the story. There's a lot of people out there who think there's too many lawyers. Maybe there are, maybe there's not. <laughs> and, you know, every time a law school closes, they celebrate it as if it's the biggest victory. Well, that's 100 people who just lost their careers. Exactly. So what you want to do is you want to, like most things I think in life, sort of in a Socratic kind of way, is sort of find the midpoint. I think that's what you're saying here. Exactly. And two, like you said, I think it's all about perspective. You know, we make a lot of assumptions based on what we hear, what we see, what the media feeds us. I know plenty of lawyers who make forty or $50,000 a year. I think the name and the title, you know, attorney or lawyer has a prestige tied to it that says you're a six-figure earner. You're doing so great in life. Everything is wonderful. And yes, there are people in big law that earn really well and there are partners of law firms, but there are tons of lawyers out there that are like I said, scraping by like the average American and doing the best that they can. And I think that's where, you know, people don't really get that. They just tie uh, income to a title and they don't really know behind the scenes. We'll post a picture in our blog that links this podcast. It's a bimodal distribution and the distribution is really thick in the 
40 to 70,000 range. Then there's this big gap between 70 to 180. And then it's very thin at the 180 to 200 for starting salaries at a law school. Everyone sees that really thin sliver, 180 to 200, but that's like five to 10% of law school graduates at best. Most people are starting off in this 40 to 70,000 range. And as you know, where you start your career generally sort of continues throughout your promotional track. Not always, but genuinely. There's some very wealthy lawyers out there, but the percentage of lawyers who are rich is a lot, I think, smaller than people realize. We even talked about athletes earlier. You know, you see athletes on TV and you assume TV, prestige, fame equals fortune. That's another presumption. In Olympic sports, most athletes are struggling to get by. They're working a full-time job in addition to, you know, trying to compete and make an Olympic team. Yes, you have seen, you know, the ones that are in the commercials that make multi-millions that are going to be able to retire from sport, but they also are the 1%. And so to hear the word professional athlete and assume that, you know, oh, Lauren's rich and everybody who is, you know, any professional athlete, it's the same sort of thing that we do. We put a lawyer on TV, all lawyers are rich. That's a job that's really hard to get and I'm not in that tax bracket. I can count on maybe 10 off the top of my head, Olympic athletes who can live off their brand alone. I was on a phone call early this morning with someone at my firm and she asked me, why does Lauren do financial planning? And I said, well, I don't know why she picked that particular route. Now I think I do, but she's got to do something. No one's sitting around saying, I'm going to give this Olympian $600,000 because I feel like it. Exactly. (laughs) If if there is someone and you're listening, please do call me because I'm I'm happy to take that check. So we're going to have doctors call me to fix my foot. (laughs) And we'll have Jeff Bezos call you if he happens to be listening to the podcast. Exactly, exactly. Even if we earn well, we earn well for a short period of time. Right, right, right. And so it's not generally going to be enough that's going to allow you to retire from life and never do anything again. So you're exactly right. I did not earn enough to retire. But in addition to that, I also had two financial advisors during the time that I was competing. And I didn't feel like they did a very good job for what my particular problems and concerns were. And that was another reason I joined the industry was to kind of fill a gap for what I felt like young professionals were in need of versus what the industry was offering. We've corresponded over email with someone named Katie Hoff. Do you recognize that name? Uh-uh. She's an Olympic swimmer. She wrote a book called Blueprint, which is really fascinating. Your story about winning the silver and not winning the gold is exactly her book, Blueprint, which is no Olympian sets out as their goal to win a silver or a bronze, which is why, I mean, my, my doctoral study was on goal setting. But I often think that habits are more important than goals. So many of us have the same goal. The person that consistently and dutifully does the same thing every day, every day is going to be more likely to get to that goal. But you're still going to get to the 0.0 second loss from time to time. And that's what Katie's book is on. And I think she wrote the book because of there's a lot of mental health issues for former athletes mm-hmm. as well. Uh, did you see the documentary, The Weight of Gold? I have not watched it because I oh, just know it's going to be emotional. Yeah. Like, yeah, I've heard all about it. A bunch of my friends are in it and I'm like, mm. It's very emotional and depressing. I think Kitty Hoff wrote that book to address that issue, but she also probably wrote the book because where's your source of income? So I go to law school. I think I'm going to graduate in the top 10% of my class and end up at big law. There's a 90% likelihood I won't. (laughs) Only 10% graduated in the top 10%. I don't know how else to say it. I try not to use law school names or I get angry emails from those law schools. So all of a sudden I'm indebted to 180,000, 250,000, the Princeton Law School. And I'm starting off as a solo practitioner, just like you and I. I have to start my own firm and go to more debt. What should that person do? What's the financial literacy there? The thing you need to know is like what exists? What options exist out there? 
if you owe more than 1.25 times what you make, you are in a situation where you should be looking at forgiveness. So as an example, you owe $50,000 and you make $70,000, you earn more than you owe, you should be trying to pay your loans back. Reverse that, you owe $70,000 and you start out at $50,000, you should end up in a situation where you're going to use income-driven repayment plans. So they're going to say, hey, how much money do you make? They're going to do a calculation based on the federal poverty rate, your family size, and your actual income. And they're going to come up with an amount that you should be able to afford to pay monthly. You get on that plan and you do that for, like I said, either 20 or 25 years, whatever's left over is forgiven. So you first need to know that those plans exist. Now, you're probably also not planning on making $50,000 forever. One situation I've seen with lawyers is they start clerking initially and then they go to big law. So you have that year or two of low income and then you get another opportunity that you really enjoy. And now you're in a situation where your income is high enough for you to be able to pay the loans off. So you want always want to be reevaluating where you are financially and whether you're in a position to pay off or if you should continue on your income driven repayment plan. But two, know what plans exist. So like you said, if you're clerking, you're going to be qualified for public service loan forgiveness. You're probably doing it for a government or a county and you can get two years of public service loan forgiveness qualified, you know, while you're doing that clerkship. And what that means is you fill out what I said, what we call employer certification form. You have those direct loans and you're making payments on an income driven repayment plan during that time. Maybe you decide afterward, like, oh, I really enjoy this work and I want to become a public defender or I want to do something that's going to continue to help people. So, yes, you take on less income because you help people, but your student loans don't have to be something that damaged your ability to do other things in life. So you get on your income driven plan. You do it for 10 years. You get your loans forgiven. That's one thing off your plate. And one thing that's really cool that a lot of people don't know is that you can still save for retirement while being on one of these plans. Actually, saving for retirement helps you pay less towards your student loans. And this is where like people are completely mind blown. Like what, Lauren? Putting me, right. Like, how does that work, right? Well, if you're putting money away into like a 401k, a 403b, those are what we call pre-tax retirement accounts. And you can put up to 19,500 into them. So 19,500 is one thing a lot of people don't know. They do like three or 4%, their employer match, and they never get past that, but Imagine you make $100,000 a year. Well, let's say you make $120,000, $119,500, just to be exact. Well, you can put $19,500 away and still have $100,000 of your income. So instead of on paper paying taxes on $120,000 of income, you're now paying taxes on $100,000 of income. Also, instead of paying your student loans based on $120,000 of income, you are paying your student loans based on $100,000 of income. So it's like, oh, okay, I make less on paper. I pay less taxes on paper. And the way that I did that was by loading up my retirement account, which I want to do because everybody wants to retire, right? We all want to save. We want to do that. So this is further incentive to do so and save money on your student loans. I love it. And this is what your firm does too, right? It helps advise people in this area. Exactly. So that's exactly what we do at Student Loan Planner. And the thing I really love about working there is that it is not a long time commitment. We do one hour consultations that give you the clarity you need so that you can take control of your finances. So we're not in the business of enabling people. We don't want you to be on a six month payment plan with us to do your paperwork. We're going to tell you exactly what you need to do because it is something you can do on your own. You just need to know and understand the same way I'm going to seek out a lawyer if I need professional help, but I don't need maybe to have the lawyer on retainer. You know, I'm not that, that fancy kind of person. I need clarity and I need to know what next steps I need to do to protect myself. You need a short-term engagement. 
That's exactly what we do with Student Loan Planner, short-term engagement to help you get clear based on what your goals are, what kind of job you're in, what paperwork you might need to fill out. And we're also going to give you some, like you said, personal finance tips along the way so that you can start making really good decisions for yourself. And so just to send people your way for advice, you have a podcast. Yeah. So studentloanplanner.com, if you're looking for a student loan plan, and if you want to listen to that podcast, we you know right. give tons and tons of free information away that will help you better understand how to navigate your student loans. And we pride ourselves on, like you said, making sure that it's good, credible information so that you can get the information you need. And then on the other end of it, I have a podcast that's called Worth Listening where people come on and they tell their money story. So what I think is really cool is when you hear someone else's story, you're like, oh, they have that trouble too. They have that struggle as well. I'm not alone. And it helps people feel empowered to be able to take control of their finances because they're realizing that, you know, everybody's got bumps in the road. Everybody's got good things and bad things happening to them. And it's okay to start talking about our finances because that's something that we're not doing very much as young professionals. It took me until I hit my 40s to realize this, but life is messy for everyone. Mm -hmm. Including Jeff Bezos, right? Like I said, there's people that we put on these pedestals to say that their life is super duper easy. And yeah, I'm sure it's not the same kind of hard that, that those of us that are not earning like Jeff Bezos are experiencing, but everybody's got crap going on. Oh, yeah. I mean, he has financial freedom, obviously, but there's all kinds of psychological, emotional, well health, well-being, self-care freedoms that he's probably lacking because of the trade-off. That's another aspect of life. It's all a series of trade-offs. Right. That's well, a whole nother podcast. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, know yeah, money yeah. cannot buy you happiness. <laughs> we've, done, we've actually done three of those. So if, for our listeners, if you haven't heard them yet, Dr. Guy Winch on handling rejection. That's a wonderful one. Dr. Gabor Matei did one on anxiety, stress. That's another one. And then Dr. Kristen Neff on our podcast did one on self-compassion. I'm going to listen to those. Well, the self-compassion one is interesting. Like we talk to our friends or our husbands and significant others, our wives, our spouses, you know, in a certain way, but we talk to ourselves 180 degrees the other way. You know, yeah. I can say to my best friend, I'm so worried about you. I care so much about you. And that thing you think you failed at, that's like a minor bump in the road. The way I talk to myself is, Mike, you moron. How could you possibly do this, that, or the other? We'll send you that. When we prepare for our big race in Dallas <laughs> over email, I'll send you the link. <laughs> Deal? This is totally happening, right? We only have a few more minutes. Is there a question I should have asked you about student loan forgiveness debt that I didn't ask you? Well, what a lot of people who already have student loans who may be on their income-driven plan, you know, they're experiencing COVID right now. You have not had to pay your loan since March 13th of 2020. That is getting ready to come to an end at the end of September and October payments are going to kick back in. So people are like, are payments actually going to kick back in? The answer is, I cannot say definitively for sure. But as of right now, they have not notified us that they're not going to kick back in. So you should start to prepare. So if you're listening and you have student loans, whatever your payment was previously, start setting that money aside to get mentally ready for that money needing to go back to the federal government. And then if you feel like some of the things that I talked about today, like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not sure if I should be refinancing or doing federal loans. All the payments that you've made since March 13th of 2020, so nobody was required to make any payments. Some people tried to make some payments anyway to kind of work their debt down a little bit, but maybe you were working your debt down a little bit and it actually was throwing your money into a black hole. So let me give a quick example. You got $400,000 of student loan debt. You work in public service. You make $50,000 a year. 
you paid extra because you wanted to just work on it, which was noble. You're not going to pay that debt off. So you shouldn't have been making payments during this time. You should have been building up your retirement. You should have been building your emergency fund. You can get a full refund of any monies that you've paid from March 13th of 2020 to present. So if you are not sure if whether or not you made the right to plan, go get your refund and then get a consultation so you understand what you uh, should be doing. I feel like I've made so many of those noble financial mistakes in my life. I'm so debt averse. I feel like I probably have been paying down debt and things where I should have been putting that money into investments or retirement. Yeah, you definitely don't want to sacrifice yourself when paying down debt. So if you have credit card debt right now, definitely work on that credit card debt. That's double digit interest rates probably almost for sure. But you need to be putting something aside for yourself. And sometimes we get so, like you said, in the same way we talk negatively to ourselves, we get so caught up on getting rid of something negative that we forget to also give ourselves something positive. So we need to build while we're also diminishing debt. Perfect note to end on. You have many accolades and accomplishments. You've also gotten rid of some of the what felt like failures in the moment. So kudos to you. I'm glad we connected, Lauren. I'm so glad we connected. We'll put this up online and it's going to be tremendous value to our listeners. So thank you. And I will reach out to you about either financial literacy or seeing you in Dallas. All right. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Mike. Have a great day.